John, thank you very much for coming on the Coastal Catch-Ups. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Sam. It's great to have you. Um, Great to have you. Um, And I think a lot of our listeners will find your stories very interesting. I know speaking to you beforehand, you're very modest, but I think the adventures and all the rest are the maybe people that haven't experienced those things will be um it'll be great for them to hear so if you wouldn't mind john just to start um tell us a bit about yourself your relationship with uh, the coastline um your your livelihood how you've been involved in the coastline boats and all the rest okay okay well so um i suppose uh born and grown up in belfast uh but i started sailing when i was about 10 and from then on i suppose i spent as much time as possible every summer on or on the shores of strangford lock uh, i just got really really into sailing uh, obsessed you might say and um so then i moved away from northern ireland to go to university in 1978 and to be honest you know that was the height of the troubles and, and i probably thought I was never going to come back again but lo and behold here I am back uh, very fortunate to be actually living on the shore of Stranford Lock which is just fantastic and uh, now I'm retired so uh, I suppose in terms of the sailing that I've done uh, you might say I'm a bit of a jack of all trades I've done lots of different uh, types of it but so um Starting off uh, as a young guy through my teens and my twenties, it was really all about dinghy racing, uh, and then, well, after we got married, um, I'm married to a sailor, which is very convenient, uh, and uh, we started when when our family came along, we started cruising a little bit with them, uh, but then as they got older and they got into dinghy racing, then we kind of became their support crew for probably about 10 years, um, going around to events and, and all that kind of crap. And then more recently, uh, they've gone off and they're doing their own thing. And then we've got back to a bit of, bit more cruising. But more recently, actually, we bought an old uh, wooden um, day racing boat called a Glen. Uh, and we're we're back to racing again. So we've kind of again we've kind of gone full circle. Um, and the Glen, interestingly, the, the Glen is the boat that Heather's dad used to race when he was a young man. And uh, we're doing it at the club that Heather grew up in as a kid as well. So you know, things go round. So sail, sailing has basically just been in your blood since uh, you were a nipper, basically, and it's just yeah. continued. continued. It wasn't, um, you know, my, my, my parents didn't say anything, but my uh, elder sister started and my brother independently started sailing. Uh, they're both a bit older than me. And uh, so I started crewing for them a wee bit. But then very quickly, I suppose, I became much more obsessed than they ever did. And 
you know, I was just reading all the books and, mm. and just wanted to be on the water anytime I could in the summertime. Yeah. And the dinghy sailing you were involved in, was it competitive? Was it a bit more relaxed? Did you travel much with that? Uh, well, it, it it seemed pretty competitive to me. I was very yeah. competitive. Um, in my teens, I didn't really have the opportunity to to travel around very much in the way that maybe people do more now. So mm -hmm. the racing was very largely on Stratford Lock. Uh, but then I suppose as I went into my 20s, and by that stage I was living in England, mm -hmm. uh, I used to do a little bit like the stuff that you do now, Sam. You know, I, I would go to national championships in dinghies uh, you know, around, around the coast and uh, come back wrecked like you are now. Got to recover. Uh, yeah, a week in Cornwall sailing uh, in heavy winds does that to the person. Um, in terms of actually, I wanted to ask you, comparing this dinghy sailing to what it's like now compared to when you, you started off, I take it the sport is growing. And because you always hear stories about fleets of boats appearing and then disappearing. Um, you, you mentioned about the Glen and it's longevity has actually been quite good but some fleets have disappeared and then others emerge but overall do you think the actual sport of sailing's growing around our coastline or do you think it's decreased in a way i don't have any facts and figures yeah i think dinghy sailing has declined definitely from right. when i was yeah. and but but there are an awful lot more bigger cruisers around mm -hmm. So a lot of which tend to just sit in marinas, maybe. But mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I when I was growing up at, at East Down Yacht Club, uh, just down the, the coast from where I am now, the the biggest boat there was thirty five feet long, and it seemed huge. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, when people are buying their first boat, a lot of people are buying a bigger boat than that. It's kind of a bit mad, really. Um, maybe it's people are more affluent. I'm, I'm not really quite sure what it is, but mm. um, but, but no, I mean, dinghy sailing is not as big as it was, which is mm. a bit disappointing for somebody like me. But but like all sports, it, the the racing side of it has become much more professionalized than it ever was. Mm -hmm. So you know, when I was when I was your age, it was really all pretty amateur. Whereas now, as you know, there's all sorts of squads and, and training camps and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you debate whether that's better or worse, but it's certainly different. Yeah. Um, and I think dinghy sailing as well is good in the sense that, say at a young age, you're in a small boat and you learn the basics of sailing. Um, it kind of doesn't leave you. You know the bit... It's like riding a bike, it, it stays with you. And then if you do like see yourself going to cruising, at least you know, pardon the pun, you know the ropes and it kind of just teaches you the basics. And I think as well, dinghy sailing, for me, it taught me a lot of valuable lessons as in look after your stuff. Now, if my mum's listening, she'd probably disagree with this and say he left stuff at his ass all the time. But it, it kind of, if you look at like, it kind of taught taught me a lot of things and when I was looking back on it probably at the time I didn't realize but looking back on it probably taught me a lot of things about 
looking after your stuff, being on time, stuff, just like wee small things like that, which you maybe didn't appreciate at the time. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, for our three children, uh, going through the various, you know, racing squads that they were in, it taught them to be quite sort of self-disciplined, I suppose, because uh, they, they, they had their sailing to do and then they had to fit in their, their schoolwork and whatever other land-based training maybe as well. Uh, I mean, I can I can remember dropping Robbie up to a gym on the Falls Road at kind of half past six in the morning to do a workout before he then went to school to do his A level stuff. You know, uh, so sure, I mean that, that that's that's good stuff for life lessons for sure. Yeah, yeah. but here we're not talk here to talk about life lessons, Sean. We're talking about sailing. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, getting a so, bit heavy, Sam. Yeah, I know. So, um, after the dinghy sailing, you mentioned you did a bit of cruising. Maybe was it with uh, Laura and Peter, your two kids? You had well, so, um, I, well, I, I've, I've kind of done a couple of big cruises, a couple of transatlantic circuits, mm -hmm. uh, about thirty years apart, and. Then in between all of that, I've done a wee bit of local cruising, uh, but I suppose those are the two big bits of cruising that I've done. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, I mean, coming back to your point about dinghies teaching you how to sail, the, the, the sailing is the easy bit really when you're doing something like that. The, the hard bit is, for me anyway, is how does the blooming engine work? How, you know, how do you fix the electronics? You know, what do you do when a sail gets ripped uh, and your you know, nearest sailmaker is hundreds of miles away? Uh, what do you do when the toilet's blocked? <laughs> you know, these, these are, they, so cruising, there, there are all sorts of other skills that you have to develop uh, in order to be fairly self-sufficient, particularly when you're doing uh, blue water cruising, when you're, when you're going a long way from home. Mm -hmm. uh, so and that's something I, I don't think I fully appreciated the first time I went out. Yeah. So what was your what was your first longest um voyage? What was talk us through that? Okay, so I was uh 31. I, I had been living in London and for a variety of reasons I wanted to run away from it all. <laughs> uh, so I bought the biggest boat I could afford, which was a sort of 34 foot, 10 year old bog standard, sort of a cruiser really, I suppose. And uh, and I I set off, the key, key thing I suppose that my pal who I'd raced with at university in dinghies uh, had done a wee bit of cruising and he was keen to take three months off work. I, I had just quit my job and I, I was just going indefinitely. I figured out that three months would be long enough to get us from England to the Caribbean. And hopefully okay. by then I'd know what I was doing a bit better. Because before that I hadn't, I mean, literally when we left England, I had never done an overnight passage on a yacht. Uh, you know, I'd sailed to Scotland, I'd sailed to the Isle of Man and uh, just day sailing stuff, you know. So it was a bit daft looking back on it and, and a bit foolhardy 
but I guess I got away with it because I'm here still, you know. Um, had a few adventures along the way. Um, so during that trip, was there anything interesting or what lessons did you learn? And uh, yeah, what anything stand out from in the memory memory book? Well, um, we because because my pal Roger was tight on on time, uh, and you know there's a, there's a particular t- if, if you want to cross the Atlantic from the Canaries to uh, the Caribbean from December onwards, really, because that's when the winds are good. Mm-hmm. So we really had a we had to delay our departure from England until October now. Going across the Bay of Biscay in October is potentially a bit challenging, and it certainly was for us. We got beaten up quite badly, um, and that's probably the the scariest time I've ever had on a on a boat, where I really felt like, you know, this is out of our hands at this point. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen, um, and uh, so you know, we were we were caught in what the the BBC said it was a force 10 in the middle of the Bay of Biscay in October with um, no sails up, ropes out the back of the boat to try to slow us down uh, mm-hmm. as we were surfing down these horrendous waves. Um, and, you know, as, I, as I've already said, being pretty blooming inexperienced as well. So that was uh, a real baptism of fire, I suppose. The good news is it got much better after that. So. <laughs> the, the weather got warmer the wind got nicer and uh, from then on we had a pretty good time yeah I, I, I couldn't imagine how scary that would be especially if being one of I've been I've been in a, a storm and not near a force 10 mind you but um I remember that even being scary and um mm-hmm. and I, did the ropes work when you threw them out the back of the boat the slew of boat down? Well, they sort of did. Uh, I mean, th- this was, we'd, we'd read about this in books, right, Sam? So we, we'd <laughs> read all the books. We knew, we knew what we were supposed to do. And all, all the books back then said that that's what you should do. Okay. Uh, and so th- the idea is that it slows you down enough so that you can steer a bit better and you don't just get spun around by, by, the, mm-hmm. by the waves. But I mean, we did, at one point we did, uh, broach uh, so over onto our side uh, and uh, I, I didn't mention my, my I'd also calmed my brother into coming with us for the first three weeks I told him Ted we're going to take you down to Madeira and it'll be great fun <laughs> uh, so uh, and Ted isn't really a sailor uh-huh. so he was he was down below uh, we'd, we'd shut all the hatches uh, to you know in case we did get broached and have water coming in mm-hmm. uh, so all the hatches were shut Roger and I were tied on in the cockpit when we broached and Ted was down below so we, we came back up again and, and uh, you know everything was broadly intact there were a few things bent but we were we were you know still had a mast and all that and um, I kind of hammered on the on the hatch said Ted you all right and and Ted sort of shouted back yeah I'm fine uh, but we didn't open the hatch because we, you know, we were still scared about water getting in until probably, you know, a couple of hours later, uh, when we finally reckoned that conditions were such that it was safe to open the hatch. We opened the hatch and 
Ted poked his head out with this huge bandage wrapped around his head. He looked like somebody that had come from the Somme, you know. And uh, so he'd been flung across the, the cabin when we broached uh, and kind of bashed his head off the chart table, bled all over the chart, and uh, but then, you know, patched himself together. But, I mean, we, we laugh about it now, but again, you know, that could have been very bad because mm. we were well out of range of any help from anybody at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, look, I don't want to paint this sort of horrendous picture because we, if I have one message probably for people who are thinking of going cruising, it's just go because it's not, it's not that hard as long as you're reasonably sensible. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, okay, stuff goes wrong, but stuff, you know, it's generally not... Um, desperate and for the all the pluses that you get from it it's really really worth it that's what i would say um there's a great book called ocean cruising countdown now it's i think it might be out of print now but it's still on amazon mm -hmm. and uh i read it before that trip uh, and its basic message is look if you if you wait until you have all the experience and the perfect boat it'll never happen you just won't do it so yeah there, there, there's always going to be a bit of a leap of faith if you're going to have a wee bit of an adventure like that i'm sure you're managing the risks as best you can um but you know you've got to stick your neck out at some point yeah but i mean may, maybe that kind of follows up but to follow on from that then so we did another i sorry i, I did another transatlantic circuit just uh, well, five years ago now, I think it is, with my wife Heather and with our daughter Laura and son Peter. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Robbie, our eldest, was a working man at that point, so he missed out. But uh, the other two, one of them had just finished A levels, one of them had just finished uh, university. So they both took gap years and, and came with Heather and I, and that was brilliant. Uh, but in terms of that whole risk management thing, I definitely felt a lot more responsibility the second time round, and uh, was a lot more um, risk averse, let's say, in, in the way that I did things. Um, yeah, it's different when you have, yeah, kids, kids yeah, board that yeah. you're responsible for, definitely. Um, so how, how was that sailing as a family? Like, you all made it back, so you didn't fall out. I see. And uh... well, we're still, we're still talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we went, uh, Peter, uh, we, we we had a discussion about uh, you know what might annoy us each about the other, uh, so that we could try to manage that because it's a very it's it's like for people that don't know what it's like, it's a wee bit like being in a in a small touring caravan except you're in a small touring caravan that might be hundreds of miles offshore and you've got nowhere, to, you, you know, you can't get off and, and um, you know, go and get your, get your head charged, you, you, you're, you're stuck. So uh, it is important that you uh, don't wind each other up. And I mean, one of the things that Peter said was, uh, please, I don't want to see you, dad or mum naked. So, uh, so we, we did our best to avoid that, uh, even though it was very hot at times. 
I remember but, being on the boat, John, and there wasn't too many. Was it curtains or was it? There wasn't that many. Yeah, doors? there are no there are no doors on this boat. Uh, <laughs> all um, just curtains uh, or a few curtains, uh, which yeah. Um, so yeah, no nowhere to hide. Um, but so, sorry, go sorry, going ahead, John. Sorry, going ahead. No, no. I mean, I, it it was it was it was great. It wasn't always easy for everybody. You know, everybody has their tough times in the course of the what was what ten months, I think. But uh, you know, we. we I think we've all come back glad, uh, glad for the experience, glad for the adventure, and glad to seeing the places that we saw and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Not many people, yeah, get that opportunity, especially to do it with loved ones. So I think you're all very fortunate, and it's it's great. It's great to hear about it. I think people like hearing about it as well. Um, so from that trip, any any standout moments? How long? And how long was the crossing? Actually, was it three weeks from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean? Um, yeah, about that. I don't remember yeah. the exact number of days, but about that. Um, well, I suppose in terms of the, the actual uh, crossing, one of the things that uh, is very stands out very much for me is you've you've heard of sargassum weed, um, which is this kind of floating algae, but it's basically, to, to you and I, or, or to most of us, it's seaweed, but it's floating seaweed in the middle of the ocean. Now, the first time that I went across the Atlantic, uh, there, there's an area called Sargasso Sea, uh, which is where traditionally you would find some of that stuff. And first time around, 30 odd years ago, there were wee patches of it uh, that we sailed through for maybe about a week. Uh, and it was it was quite interesting and that was all mm -hmm. uh, this time around 2018 2019 there were i'm like fields of this stuff i, I can't i mean i can't emphasize enough how much sargassum weed there is in the middle of the atlantic at the moment and uh i mean i, I looked it up today actually before we before we chatted and i think it's even worse now than it was so whether that is, I think, you know, it's speculated that it's to do with uh, pollution, um, you know, maybe agricultural runoff of nutrients and so on into the, into the water, or obviously the uh, warming of the, of the water uh, is potentially another factor. But uh, from, a, from a sailor's perspective, it's a pain in the ass because you know, it clogs up your, your rudders and slows you down and you have to stop and clear your rudders and, and all that sort of stuff. But for for the people in the Caribbean and you know, around the, the shores of that whole area, it, it's a, a much more serious problem because this stuff is piling up on, on the windward shores uh, because you know, you've got the trade winds that basically blow from east to west across that part of the Atlantic. So everything piles up. On, on, on their eastern shores of the islands and of, of the mainland of Central America. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, it rots, it stinks, it's bad for tourism, it's bad for fishermen because it fills up their nets and clogs up their nets. Um, and I, I, it amazes me that there hasn't been more about it on the, the general news because it's just one of those really... Yeah, because... Uh, when you had mentioned that before we chatted, I actually I looked it up myself as well. 
Um, when I was reading about it, I think it was an article on the Guardian or something. But yeah, it seems seems to be a lot worse uh, from climate change and nutrients from agricultural runoff. But it it struck home because it it's not this. It's obviously at a larger scale of what what's happening here. We have the same problem around here in on our coast with algal blooms, and you'll hear the blue green yeah. algae and stuff like that. Um, kind of similar concept and then when you have this stuff coming on the shore yeah like you say stinks tourism's impacted um it actually um reduces photosynthesis any vegetation under that normally has nice light um uh, hitting it and it can photosynthesize um and i assume we don't know about it because we're not really over that part of the world much from here um and it's just but yeah but uh, I suppose it's it's a, a, what was a bit frightening really was that there could have been that amount of human induced change mm -hmm. in an area so vast as the North Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, but you know you could equally talk about the amount of plastic pollution that, mm -hmm. uh, that we saw compared to before. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, on the shores of Frank Lock, even which mm -hmm. uh, the amount of plastic you see is really quite depressing. Yeah, uh, I, I think you, I think you have a good point there about um, when it's when the, these problems are offshore. I'm thinking of like the the Pacific garbage patch, which you read about newsletters, but very few yeah. people will see. You know, this problem is offshore; very few people will see it. Like see yourself seeing the sargassum patches, very few people will see. So maybe, maybe it, this is why we're doing this podcast, John. Just raising awareness uh, yeah. of these issues yeah. and um, but yeah, I think you're right. The hu the human induced activity that is causing all this as well. It, well, that's a you can go off and a whole different story. Um, but it's interesting from your perspective as well. You you've done that a couple years you're separating these two trips and you can see the difference as well i think that's really interesting yeah yeah, yeah. well uh what one more sort of gloomy climate change thing and then perhaps mm -hmm. we can move on to some cheerful stuff but the um the, i mean the other thing that just scares the bejesus out of me it, it was in the news in the last uh, week or so was the uh, rise in global ocean temperatures you, and i'm sure you've seen that where mm -hmm. you know we've just completely bust the records for uh, the, the average temperature uh, and you know i suppose with, with my kind of slightly mathematical head on it um i find that much scarier than a news item about a forest fire or a you know down, tropical downpour or something like that and um, because it's the you know all these data points across the entirety of the globe from i think it's from 60 degrees north to 60 degrees south and the average of all of that has just jumped right out of the norm uh you know that is really alarming and i, I, I you know yeah when, bit, yeah when you think of the scale of the ocean and how much it takes for the cause yes. average yeah. Some, that some, something big is happening um and yeah like we've seen that marine heat wave around the uk at the minute so yeah uh yeah it's um it's frightening but i think um 
yeah, I don't don't know what else to unless we go down a rabbit hole here, John. I don't know what else to. Talk. Um, well, I I just think people need to catch. You know, we all need to catch ourselves on, really, don't don't we? And mm -hmm. you know, about everybody trying to do something mm -hmm. and, and trying to governments probably yeah. is the most important thing. Yeah, there's and there's so many interesting projects because uh, I was talking to a, um Dr. Rachel Miller last in the last episode um working for Ulster Wildlife and there's so many interesting projects because these changes are happening right now there's projects trying to help species and habitats actually adapt to all these changes because that's the pro that, that is part of the biodiversity crisis these species cannot keep up with the rapid change in um the the climate um and their environment so there's loads of interesting projects trying to and research going into that so um yeah it's um it's one just to, yeah, keep making awareness of it, and um, yeah, and I'll probably, I'm sure I'll get plenty of other guests on here to talk about that. But um, the rest, the rest of the trip, then, John, in the Caribbean. Uh, it was there any other standout moments when you got there after your adventure? You could relax a bit. You could take everything in. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... Well, you know, funny, a lot of the places that I remembered very fondly from first time round weren't so good second time round. So, you know, there's a lesson. Don't go back. Don't go back to the thing. <laughs> but, but then there were lots of places that, that uh, were fantastic. Um, we probably went a bit more off the beaten track. Uh, so, because actually, you know, some, some of the, the you know, the, the, the classic places like the Tobago Keys, for example, uh, there are just so many boats there now, and that, that, that was certainly a, a change. But if, if so we went, we went um, down to the, um, the bigger islands, so um, to, to Jamaica and to Cuba, which most boats don't go to. Mm -hmm. um, and well, actually, it was on the way to there. One of one of the standout moments, again, not in a particularly good way, was that we were sailing from the Virgin Islands to uh, an island off Haiti, and so it was about a, I think, about a five night trip, something of that, about four or five night trip, and kind of halfway into it, so we're in the middle of the Caribbean Sea, long way from anywhere really, but we're um, close enough to the South American coast that I'm a little bit conscious that in Venezuela there have been issues of piracy. So that's kind of the background. Uh, we're sailing along in the middle of the night and Laura is on watch on her own and we're, we're sailing downwind with the spinnaker up. Suddenly, she shouts to me. Uh, now, I, I, you know, she might have been normally in normal times. She might have been saying, "Dad, it's your turn to get a watch." But the way she was calling, I could tell it wasn't that. So anyway, I, I came up on deck, and the first thing I saw was uh, a bow wave and a bright light coming towards us very quickly. And so the first thing that goes through your head is, "Oh shit!" You know, it's it's a ship that we've somehow that we're somehow not seen. Uh, but then it was clear that it wasn't actually a ship. There was something smaller and faster coming in, and it turned out to be a, a big rib. 
Uh, and then when it came alongside, the next thing we saw was that there were guys with machine guns pointing at us. So you can just imagine what that was like um, for Laura and, and, and for me. And then, so, you know, I'll cut a long story short, it actually turned out that it was the US Coast Guard and the US Coast Guard then cross-examined us at gunpoint for, you know, it might've been 20 minutes. And I, I just got more and more cross about the whole situation uh, because, you know, as far as I'm aware, they have zero jurisdiction uh, in that part of the world. You know, we were in international waters. Uh, I, I presume they're there for drug, uh, you know, drug interception or whatever. But it was patently obvious that we were not doing that. Uh, you know, we had our AIS on so you, they could see, you know, we were broadcasting who we were. I'm quite sure they were able to look up the computer records to see that we'd left British Virgin Islands a few days earlier and all that sort of stuff. But uh, anyway, we went through a whole malarkey of questioning with them and then eventually I kind of lost my temper and said, right, we're, we're, we're going now, you know. Um, and so they kind of broke off contact with us with a, you know, have a nice day. <laughs> and um, then suddenly the lights came on of their mothership, which had obviously been tracking us uh, with no lights on uh, and no, uh, no identification on, uh, but close by and they kind of roared back to their, their mothership. But that was really, really scary. I mean, that, that was far scarier than any bad weather that you know we were in in the whole year. It, it was just horrendous, and I just it took me a long time to get over my anger at what they had done, because they, I think they were just using us as a training exercise, really. Mm -hmm. um, I I couldn't imagine in the moment, especially you, when you mentioned when you first saw the light almost the feeling of have we missed something here you know have we missed the yeah. ship coming towards us which uh, yeah it would be it would be the end more or less um in in that moment john how did you between the adrenaline the frustration the anger how did you actually manage to function <laughs> that's what i wanted to ask well uh, i don't have much experience of people pointing guns at me thankfully yeah. so uh, Initially, I think I, I was just being very compliant mm -hmm. uh, and trying to answer their questions. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, you know, it was, it was really only as it went on that I became more and more frustrated with it. Mm -hmm. If I'd been, if it had my wits about me, I remember I'd been woken up at two in the morning or something, but uh, if it had my wits about me a bit more, I might have said, look, who the hell do you think you are? And, and you know, what rights do you have to be doing this to us right now? But I didn't, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. It's hard um, when you have guns pointed at you, I suppose. Well, in my experience, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But, yeah, no. But, um, but you know that anyway. That was an isolated, you know, weird mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you know, as, as I mentioned, we were on our way to uh, a place called Ilabash, which is an island. It's part of Haiti, just off the, the coast of Haiti, and having been in the Virgin Islands, which is really quite western and affluent uh, you know again as i'm sure you know haiti is just in a desperate state and 
we we sailed into the bay uh, on this island, and you know people were coming out to us in dugout canoes, and mm. they had nothing. I mean, really nothing. So that was very humbling and real kind of reality check, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, very interesting as well uh, to to have the opportunity to to meet those people and spend some time with them. Mm -hmm. I the communities there have been through a lot between hurricanes and then rebuilding. Never mind, probably not even having the resources to rebuild. So, um, yeah. Well, they were they were fishing um, in kind of beat up boats with rags for sails, really. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so you know, we we gave them what we could, if you like, in terms of mm -hmm. whatever, but not very much. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but it was, but it was really interesting, and and then sort of moving on from that, we spent a month in Cuba, uh, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, I mean, Cuba is still, I suppose, opening up as a holiday destination, but there, it's a, it's a really big island, and there, and there are bits that you're able to sail to um, that you can't get to as an ordinary tourist, and um, so that was fascinating, and beautiful, really beautiful. So, you know, there were lots of. I, I, I feel like we're dwelling in all the bad things, but actually, there were lots of really fantastic things in, in the trip. Yeah, um, I know that's a problem, John. The bad, the bad things make the good stories. That's a, that's yeah, a, that makes the news, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. Um, no, and I think over, and I, I know what you mean. Dwell on the stories, but I think, um, yeah, it's fascinating for your experience and um, doing it with your family. So we, all these adventures, all these stories. Um, you're at Strangford Lock at the minute. And you have a Glen. Um, tell us a bit about that. Is that is that been how long have you owned the Glen for? Well, <clears throat> so we came back into Strangford Lock, and maybe I'd just say, for me, one of the best feelings is coming back into Strangford Lock from being away cruising because the sea is is lumpy and wavy and and uncomfortable. And then you come in past Angus Rock and into the Narrows and suddenly everything goes flat and then it opens up into this beautiful place that is Strangford Lock mm. and you just think, wow, you know, and we're home and it's, mm. it's, it's lovely. But the, so, okay, so the Glen is a class of boats that were built just shortly after the war, uh, Second World War in Bagger, and there are about a, a, a dozen that are sort of in commission, if you like, in Strangford Lock, and there's a similar number down in Dunleary, and then there are one or two dotted around in, in all sorts of funny places. Uh, but they're, uh, they're just nice, they're just nice wee wooden uh, uh, racing, day racing boats. So they, they do sort of notionally have cabins, but I certainly wouldn't want to be spending a night in one. Uh, and, and we have great close racing uh, amongst the people that have them here in the law. And that's, you know, it's just, it's just fun. It's just fun. 
And one of the things about sailing, I suppose, is that you can do lots of different types of sailing. Uh, so you can do the hardcore dinghy racing like you do now, or you can do gentle cruising, potter over the Isle of Man, you know, you can, um, or you can be slightly more adventurous, or you can do the slightly longer stuff that we've been talking a lot about. Or as you get on in years, you can come back and race other boats that are slightly less physically demanding, but still a lot of fun. Uh, so I think as a sport, it's great from that point of view. No, I think you're absolutely spot on, John. So if anyone's listening, would you rec- and they're not a sailor, would you recommend them getting into sailing? <laughs> or would you say, no, stay away, <laughs> owning a boat? <laughs> it's a nightmare <laughs> no I mean, of course I, I would say get into sailing because I, I love it but uh, you know clearly it's not it's not for everybody mm-hmm. I get scared up mountains and mm-hmm. uh, so you know it's horses for courses I suppose mm-hmm. I, I can't honestly put my finger on what it is that made it such a has made it such a passion for me throughout my life mm-hmm. uh, I mean I, I do love the um, the, the space, you know, when, you, when you're on the water, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the just the, the surroundings, but then people say they get that from a game of golf as well, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I love the fact that it's, it's never the same, two days are never the same, the wind's different, the tide's different. Um, I mean, I, I, I love w- waking up and looking out of the window here at Strangford Lock every day. And I just think, wow, yeah, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to, to try sailing. Uh, but equally, you know, there are lots of different ways of getting on the water. And I do think that, uh, you know, if, if, so if you want to do paddle boarding, you want to do canoeing, to me, that's all great too. Um, I would encourage that too. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're spot on. It's not just about sailing as well. It's lots of stuff you can do on the water. So, and mm. I think for me as well, whatever it is you're doing on the water, it's I can't multitask. So if I'm focusing on one thing, I forget about all the other problems in my life. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, uh, trying to sail a boat, make it move. That's that's a problem at, at that very moment and just focus on that and switch off so yeah um listen john i think that i'll 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 end our chat here but i just want to say thank you very much for your time and it's been great to hear about your stories um and your i love the comparison from your first trips to the, the more recent ones um and your observations around the caribbean um and also, now you're nice, nicely settled in Strangford Lock with a nice wooden boat, and you're not going to take out the Caribbean. So, I look forward to no, seeing no, it on the water. Hope to and hope to say that for a few years to come. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, John. Thanks again, and uh, well, catch you soon. Really nice to talk to you, Sam. Thank you. Hi everyone, thank you so much for listening to the most recent episode there with John Gilmore. 
For me, the most interesting thing of that chat was the difference John noticed between his trips from the Caribbean, uh, his first one to his last one, the changes he noticed in the landscape around the area. That includes the sargassum weed fields that have grown significantly due to climate change and agricultural runoff. So it was really interesting to get a first-hand uh, experience from uh, John um, on all these issues that we may not see in the news all the time. So it's really great to talk about them and raise awareness. Um, just one thing before I go, I would really appreciate if if whatever platform you're listening to Coastal Catch-Ups on, if you could like, share, uh, review the podcast, it'll really help spread the message and get the podcast out there, which I would really, really appreciate. So thank you. And in addition to that, if you want to stay up to date with the episodes, you can subscribe uh, to our email newsletter on the website. So um, check that out if you want to stay up to date. Uh, so that's everything. Thank you very much and I'll see you on the next episode. It's all about marine and the coastal sea Aquatic life and everything in between So sit on there and take a seat Coastal catch-ups Stampede